Good evening, Park. <clears throat> what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text in full. We'll be in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Uh, and then I'll go to the Lord in prayer uh, before our sermon tonight. After all the craziness. Right. I'm usually on the other side of the craziness. So, Starting in verse 4, this is the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Go with me one more time in prayer. Holy God, we hear these words read, and I believe even now it's hard for us to feel the chains in which Paul had on his arms when writing them. You call us to rejoice, to not be anxious. So Father, as we hear that truth tonight, I pray it would fall on hearts willing and ready. It's in your most heavenly name we pray. Amen. It's the mid-300s A.D. There's a man by the name of Basil. Basil was an ancient theologian and apologist that was gaining a lot of traction in the early church. He's mostly recognized for his advanced understanding of the Trinity and uh, much-needed defense of the deity of Christ. The emperor at the time, who was not a fan of this new Christian faith, had it out for Basil. One day, the emperor became fed up with Basil and threatened to take all of his belongings, exile him, torture him, and even kill him in the street right there in front of everybody. Listen to Basil's response. All that I have that you can confiscate are these clothes that are rags and maybe a few books. Nor can you exile me, for wherever you send me, I shall be God's guest. And as to torture, well, you should probably know that my body is already dead in Christ. And death, well, that would be a great thing to me, because far sooner would I see the face of my Savior King. The emperor was baffled and said no one had ever spoken to him like this before. Basil responded yet again, Maybe it's because, dear emperor, you've never met a true Christian. I tell you this brief church history story because as we approach this, this truth of rejoicing and to, to not be anxious, I think it's possible that us in our American, comfortable, cozy lives in Western Christianity, we might approach this text as if it's just a regular Sunday school truth and not a war cry of the early church. Imagine, imagine Basil hearing the words of the Apostle Paul written not even 150 years earlier. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Tonight, we may be tempted to approach this text with callous hearts. And I want us to remember men like Paul, who even in this letter is writing from chains, 
a, a persecuted, dying man with wounds stripped with a life of, of a faithful gospel ministry. These are not merely exhortations for us to callously look over, but they're a war cry. The demeanor in which the early church was called to in the midst of persecution. So in love, I would ask you to turn up the intensity around these words. Turn up the, the, the situation on this text. Turn up that this isn't just a Wednesday night prayer service, but, but we ourselves are in prison with Paul, being called to rejoice. Our point tonight is this, our main point. All of it can be summarized this way. We are to rejoice and live in what God has done for us as a witness. And yet, when we're tempted to be anxious, prayer is a practical map to the divine peace which God longs to give us. Look with me at verse 4. That'll be our first point tonight. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Uh, This text tends to preach itself because it's very direct. Our first point, just rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. That's what he says, so that's what I'm going to say. Paul doesn't sugarcoat anything here. Rejoice, be happy, be glad, be overwhelmed with the glory of God. Fall in love with Jesus. Why? Because he's worth it. Think, Think of what he has done for you. This, our king, left heaven to come and save a people who spit on his glory on a day-to-day basis. My goodness, rejoice. Think of how happy you were when you received your first Christmas gift when you were a child, whether it was the bike or Lego set for me, or maybe it was the moment you got your dream job or had your favorite food for the first time. Those gifts from God, demanded an emotional response from us. We were, we were happy. We were, we were delighted in that moment. Far deeper, far more effectually and intimately should we rejoice in meditating on the salvation in which God has granted us. This verse preaches itself and we only have 20 minutes. Just rejoice. Moving on to point two. Look with me at verse five. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Point two, reasonableness, gentleness as a response and ultimately a witness to those around us. If you're holding an ESV Bible, uh, the word here is reasonableness. Most English translations actually translate it as gentleness. It makes a little more sense in our American uh, language gentleness, the the demeanor in which we are called to respond to the world uh, upon rejoicing. And so if we have have a true knowledge of this Jesus who came down from heaven, if we have a true knowledge of this God who, who stands in glory, then after rejoicing and adoring him, it should affect us. It affects us in the way that we live towards those around us. We then become gentle reasonable, tender. Gentleness and reasonableness is the natural response that follows when someone is truly joyful in Christ. I think oftentimes we tend to labor in sanctification, be, be better in our works. We try to kill sin with a good heart, 
But before doing all of that, before fighting and, and, and wielding these good works, we forget to just sit at the feet of Jesus and adore him for who he is. I mean, he's our king. He is our Lord. And if we truly love him, if we truly believe in him, our heart will spring with joy because it's so overwhelmed at who he is and what he has done for us. And then that joy will shower us and the aroma of Christ will, will, will smell in great ways to the people around you. Pastor Grant says, if you're around me, you're going to get wet. That's kind of the point, right? Gentleness and reasonableness. Uh, one of the beautiful things uh, about this plea is that we're not just gentle and reasonable because God demands us to be, but God then blesses that and uses us as a witness to those around us who are unbelievers. I mean, look at the, look at the second half of that. D- let your reasonableness be made known to who? Everyone. Not, not the church, not people who are biologically related to you, not your friends, not those in your political party, not those that are the same race as you, everyone. Because that aroma, that, that smell can fall on anyone who's observing, believer and unbeliever. So again, we, you rejoice, it affects you, that affection then is contagious to those around you and it bleeds into a witness. That's grace. That's grace. The, the mechanics of God's glory then affecting us and being used to a witness, that's grace. And then partner with the preaching of the gospel, you kind of have the perfect milkshake for salvation of unbelievers. Again, we're going fast. Point three. Let's look with me at verse six, the second half, or first half. Do not be anxious about anything. Stop. We're going to stop at that comma. That point, point three. Nothing merits our anxiety. Nothing. Do not be anxious about anything. I think it's hard for us to hear because our minds are so tainted in sin that we're not called to be anxious about anything. You can almost like hear the, the response of the human coming up, right? Like, do not be anxious about anything. But God, you, oh, you said anything. Oh, Lord, but you had, oh, oh anything. Hard thing about the word anything is that it's all-encompassing. Anything is everything. Everything is anything. So all things are anything. There's no thing that's not anything. So nothing in this life, in this world, merits your anxiety. In fact, that the real heart of our anxiety is a lack of faith and trust in God. Now, I think this is difficult, particularly for us. Um, have you guys ever heard of a terrarium? Do you guys know what terrariums are? Yeah. Me and my wife used to build terrariums together. Uh, we don't anymore, uh, but they're like little fish bowls. They don't have water in them or fish, uh, but they're big glass bowls that are like an ecosystem completely controlled by the person doing it. Multiple plants, some people put bugs in them. But there's like a biological story unfolding in the terrarium, and it's all designed to specifically breed certain results. We put a succulent in there so that this happens, or we, we put this to plant in here so that we, in so many days we'll see this. I think this world is really a terrarium for anxiety and depression. Our modern day society, our, our world in which we live in, really affects us so deeply that it breeds anxiety and depression. Uh, we are 
so anxious. And it's hard not to be with the internet, bullying, secularism, the sexual revolution, abuse, caffeine, social media, cell phones, financial struggle, the lack of job security, mean bosses, cancel culture, war, you name it, we're in an ecosystem that's warring for our heart to not trust Christ and instead be anxious. I wonder the anxiety that Basil felt when the emperor looked at him and threatened to take everything from him in a moment. And instead of choosing that anxious response and crippling and, oh, you know, you, you know, all right, I'll denounce my faith. I'm sorry, I'll stop preaching. I'll stop preaching for the lost so, that you, so I can be comfortable. But he chose, he chose rejoicing. He tried to rejoice over what God has given him and to preach at the emperor to then convict, be convicted of sin. I wonder what that was like. I do want to take a second to make a caveat. In our world, mental health and the mechanics of that are a real thing. Uh, people struggle with anxiety and depression in ways that uh, I don't want to have dumbed down and Bible beaten to the ground. So if you're here today, I pray that, you know, as the Lord leads, seek the help of your pastors, seek the help of those in our body who are gifted in counseling and, and dealing with mental health because those are real things and products of a fallen world uh, that as a church we, we, we do deal with. But even if we have brothers and sisters among us who struggle with anxiety, there's a little bit of anxiety in every one of, one of us. And tonight, if you are crippled with anxiety, you, you came here and you're like, Patrick, that's my sin. I am an anxious person. First and foremost, me too. I am an anxious man preaching to anxious people in an anxious terrarium. I pray that you would heed the words of Psalm 121. It's such a beautiful psalm. It has comforted me in midst of affliction uh, in my life. I don't have time to go there. Uh, but I pray that, I pray that tonight, if, if, that's, if that's your sin, you would, you would find refuge in Psalm 121. I think if we isolate this first part of the verse, if we isolate the command uh, to not be anxious, it's like an incomplete equation. It's an unsolvable problem. It's, it's, a pre, it's like a command without practical steps to help us. It's like if I... I mean, some of you really could do this, but I couldn't do it. It's like if someone was like, drive to Pasadena, California right now with no directions. I would, I would know the objective. I would know how I'm supposed to, I would know where I need to be, how I need to get, but I wouldn't know how I need to get there. But then we get the second half of verse six. And the Lord gives us a practical map to the peace in which he wants to offer us. So look with me at this, at this just treasure of a verse. Uh, the second half of 6b. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. So there's that anything is everything. It's kind of the, it's, it's oh yeah. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. We don't merely serve a God that stands behind heaven and allows us to suffer without his hand. We serve a God who lends his ear to us, who loves us so much that he invites us in First Peter to cast all of our anxieties onto him. I think this verse also 
uh, not only encourages prayer, but a specific type of prayer. Prayer in thanksgiving and supplication. Supplication, uh, the root word supply. We teach our kids in the, in the Wednesday night class, the, I'm sure all of you have heard of it, the acts, diag- adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and, and um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, right? The, the four kind of steps of prayer, if you will. And we see two of them right here. God merely just invites you to put all of the things you need onto him and make them his problem and not yours. Uh, if you guys want a book recommendation, there's a guy named George Mueller. He's a fascinating person. He loved the Lord so much, made prayer his life, uh, and he would just cast all of his all of his burdens on the Lord. And it's just time and time again, the Lord would meet him where he's at. Uh, George Mueller, Roger Steer's biography on George Mueller. If you're if you're interested, it's a great read. I think up to this point, I've really lacked application in my sermon uh, intentionally because. Textually, this is the application. Pray. Pray, pray, pray. You can never pray enough. But specifically, pray in thanksgiving and supplication. Thank him for what you have and ask him for what you need. And, and, I, and again, we, we don't want to forget verse four. Like, we're rejoicing. Like, this is mind-blowing that the creator of the universe would even meet a lowly person, and invite him, hey, son, I will give you what you need. I will supply your needs in supplication. No supplication is too small. We've prayed for how many dogs on uh, Wednesday night church with the kids? Muggsy, like a thousand times. <laughs> the Lord is so kind and to lend his ear to you. Pray with him in sex, Thanksgiving and, and, and supplication. Uh, I want to draw your attention to 1 Peter 5, 7. Just a real quick, great, great verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties, because he cares for you. He cares for you. That's point, point four. Prayer is a practical means uh, to the peace of God. Finally, uh, let's look with us together at, at, verse, at verse seven. Verse seven. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Point five, peace as a present gift. Peace as a present gift. Our Lord does not merely give us instruction, tell us to do it, tell us how to do it, but he gives us a reward to look forward to. If you are not anxious and you pray and cast your anxieties onto me, I will grant you peace. I think every person that struggles with anxiety would do anything for peace. And I'm not ignorant to the fact that in our body, even tonight, in the faces that I'm looking at, there's probably a war in so many hearts against this sin. Hear these words. The peace of God is available to you. The peace of the creator of the universe comes to be available for you on like a massive platter. If you'd only love and trust him enough 
to pray and believe that when you cast your anxieties on him, it's actually doing something. Every person who struggles with anxiety knows what it feels like to cry, to hurt, to itch and to be sick with desire for peace. Every anxious person desires that the fast heartbeats, the sleepless nights, the the grinding teeth, the, the sweating profusely, the sharp chest pain, they just, they pray that it would stop. They pray for that peace. But I love that this peace is actually personified as doing something. So the gift of peace is glorious and, and awesome, but there's a verb ascribed to the peace, which is, which I mean, great linguistic stuff going on there. The peace guards. It's doing something. It's, it's keeping your heart from what is going on out there. When, when peace comes, when peace comes and falls on your heart, it makes it a lot easier to go to work on Monday. It makes it a lot easier to open the bank account. It makes it a lot easier to look your wayward child in the eyes and preach the gospel to them. When, when peace comes, it guards your heart from disobedience. It holds you. He holds you. This text is so important to me because I've experienced it. When I was 17 years old, I had a really bad phone call. I would love to talk with you and, you know, if you would like to hear my personal testimony, but I had a really bad phone call. I didn't even know lick about the Bible, nothing. So I just typed into my ESV Bible app, anxious. I'm anxious. This text came up. This text came up and says, tell your heart to rejoice because that anxiety that you feel is not worth it. And I'm here to guard you with my peace. And then when you do all that, man, I'm gonna make you like a a pleasing aroma to the unbelievers and, and your life can be a witness to mine. Peace, peace. Beloved, we are to rejoice and to live in what God has done for us as a witness. And yet when we're tempted to be anxious, prayer is our practical map to the divine peace of God. Let us be a people found on our knees. Unlike many church fathers, Basil uh, the Great was kept from death. And after that heroic moment uh, with the emperor, rejoicing and not choosing anxiety, he went on to be the primary voice in defending the deity of Christ in the early church. Basil Basil was so influential theologically that the blood-stained Bible that you all hold in your laps was so affected by his ministry, it would take me 45 minutes to explain it. He shaped Christian doctrine, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity specifically, one that we don't even have to work through anymore. But above all, he was a pastor who loved God's people and sought to care for the needy and the sick, letting his reasonableness, his gentleness be known to everyone. He would later on be cited heavily at a little place called the Council of Nicaea. And the Lord would use his witness deeply. Brothers and sisters, there's power in our decision to rejoice while we live in this terrarium of anxiety. Pray with me.
You are king, Father, you are Lord. There's, there's no God but you. You're holy and you love the anxious. Teach us to kill our anxiety and to rejoice in you because worthy is the name. Worthy is the name. To any of us have the name we pray. Amen.